You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, we'd like to extend an invitation to join our private community at therapistuncensored.supercast.com. In this group... It's growing, it's thriving. We're, you know, there's reading pods, it's an ad-free feed, and you're going to get first crack at super exciting things that we do periodically, bringing some of the authors in, studying directly with one another. For as little as $5 a month, please sign up at therapistuncensored.supercast.com. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. Building on decades of professional experience, this podcast tackles neurobiology, modern attachment, and more in an honest, easily digestible way. Today's session begins right now with Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. So Sue, that last episode that you just did with Carol George, it was really awesome. And I was excited to listen to it. And actually, I was really excited for you because for those of you who don't know that, you might have heard it along the way, but who has been a real fan of Carol George, or actually Patricia credited a lot of these individuals who are just the base of attachment and making it come alive. And Carol George has been somebody that you've been really excited to meet. So what was that like meeting her? It was funny, you know, because I hadn't even thought about bringing her on because scholars and researchers are so difficult to get them to kind of get out of their, the annals of research. (laughs) (laughs) For for those those of you might have been with us a long time, enough enough you might know where that came from. Uh, it was a blooper. But to pull people out of academics, you know, because you have to be so careful when you are a researcher and a scholar and speaking so clearly and carefully that to do a live kind of informal podcast, it's a, it's a bit of a reach. So it's often hard to get folks that are in academics to come get on the mic. So I was just thrilled that she said yes. And I have noticed one trend about that. Like when Alan Sroof came on, he was retired and Carol George is retired. So maybe we just need to wait long enough for people <laughs> to kind of, it's not at all that they've finished their career because they're both quite prolific, but there's some way to kind of seduce them to come on. So uh, yeah, I was really thrilled that she said yes. You know, that's one of the huge goals. What is so fun about that is many levels, but when that's the biggest goal of Therapist Uncensored when we started it, and that was we wanted to take all this incredible research and people we meet and that we train under, be able to make their voice come alive and get it out to everybody. And that's exactly what you did with Carol George. It's true. Like basically bridging the original research with every one of you that is listening right now. So that's just felt like such an honor. And it felt like an honor to sit with her. She's such a legend. 
And I really just wanted to go slow and really hear her story. It felt a little bit like documenting some sort of history. Is really how right. it felt. So I hope that people didn't think it was too long. As a matter of fact, we initially had talked about doing two episodes, one just more about her and her journey all the way up to the AP. And then the second one, I wanted to focus on the adult attachment projective and attachment assessment in general. And, and we just ended up just doing one long session. Yeah, super excited. But because it was so dense, we thought we would bounce back on and kind of like we did with Patricia Crittenden, I think. Right. And just sort of talk about some of the highlights of our highlights, kind of bring it alive to some of you that may not have been able to listen through the whole, I don't know, what was it, an hour and a half or something? Not quite that long, but it was definitely one of our longer episodes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it helped with Patricia too, that we get to kind of walk through. We have so many different thoughts as we're listening and we've been reading, both of you and I have been reading about these names for so long. And one thing I'll tell you personally that I loved hearing is when she laughs and talks about sitting on the floor, like having to get something sent across the country to be able to sit and read, even thinking about her doing her dissertation and her talking about pre-computers, Kai related to that. And then we marched through, literally marched through Bowlby's volumes and the lost volume was being sent to us in pieces, <laughs> nailed across the, and there was no email, there was no fax. Yeah, welcome to the world of the 1970s and 80s, early 80s. None of this technology. And so Mary would receive copies of these chapters of loss. She'd given them to Nancy and I to read. The point being, though, that then we started to ask questions about attachment events. So when she says Mary, she's meaning Mary Main, the Mary Main. For those of you who aren't familiar, basically the, you know, John Bowlby is the person who created the initial theory. And then Mary Ainsworth brought it alive with her research. And without Ainsworth, we may not have heard about attachment. And then Mary Main worked directly with Ainsworth. And so when she's saying Mary, she's talking about that Mary Main. (laughs) She mentions Nancy, that's Nancy Kaplan, who also was very much part of this work. And basically what she's saying is that Bowlby, as he would finish a chapter in his book, Loss, would copy the chapter, physically mail it overseas, and then when Mary Main would get a copy of the one chapter, she would give it to Carol George and Nancy Kaplan. They were basically reading it as it was being written. So that was a it just really kind of helped ground it in history and was just such an amazing thing to hear. What I love about it is, is how much they were all building on one another, like hearing the research and then reading it and then building on like her discussion about loss and, you know, how they added to it and took it to the next step. Well, and one of the interesting things that I don't know if this came across in the interview, but what she was saying for her that this assessment, the adult attachment projective, she feels like that that ties more directly back to Bowlby's idea of attachment in a very direct way, where the adult attachment interview ended up measuring things that were fascinating, but it was just kind of a one-off. So before we sort of jump in and all the details of the interview, for those that haven't like gone on and just really followed these people like you and I have. Why is it relevant? Let's slow down for a minute and like, why is Carol George, what is the AAP and why is it so important? Why do people out there who haven't tracked it, why does it matter to them? That's such a great question. The general idea is that attachment is used and you guys have heard us say this many times, but it's just used so broadly now that there's a way in which it's kind of lost, you know, the meatiness (laughs) of its meaning What I really like about bringing Carol George in is that it brings us right back to the very early development of 
defining attachment and measuring attachment. So for those out there that haven't been tracking all this history, why is it relevant? You know, if, if we're not experts, if you're out there listening and you're not an expert in this area, why is learning about sort of assessment and hearing from Carol George so relevant and important? Give us in two minutes, two minutes to... You're right. We get so deep in the weeds that it's very easy to just be geeking out on this stuff, but let's make it relevant for everybody. The reason that we want to really dig into this, that particular interview is that assessment, assessing attachment is really important, that attachment has gotten to be a word that people use in many different ways, and it can really lose the meatiness of what it really means. And, so, and it actually can create anxiety, right? Like many people are about attachment, all related to attachment parenting, and they have this idea of what it's supposed to look like. It really has been interpreted in so many different ways, hasn't it? Like what is attachment is kind of this ongoing nebulous concept sometime in the public sphere. That's right. And we want to, on our podcast, keep it you know, pedal to the metal, keep it real as far as what we mean by it. So that was what was so cool about bringing an original attachment researcher onto the podcast. Now, also, attachment is one of those things that is very difficult, even though you hear about it. And, you know, we talk about the spectrum and stuff, but it's not to diagnose ourselves. It's measuring the actual, the relationship. It's not a diagnosis for a baby. Correct. When we do attachment assessment, through behavioral observation, we're always measuring the relationship. And the relationship is the intersection of these two people right here. It's the dance, they quote unquote, Dan Stern's language, the notion of dance that they do together. Of course, over time, that becomes internalized and becomes part of the self. So what she's basically saying, like you just said, and it's not a diagnosis, and we're not saying this baby is disorganized or this baby is anxious, preoccupied. What we're saying is the relationship between this child, this child has learned to lean in this particular defense in order to maintain proximity of the parent. So going back to your, I think your good, you know, grounding point about why is it important? Why is assessment important? Is that these things happened before we were old enough to remember anything. So when you do an adult paper and pencil test where you kind of are guessing your attachment status, that is all conscious. It's like how you perceive yourself. And we're notorious for being really bad at predicting our attachment status. And that is because so much of it is underground. Her work basically represents that developmental attachment where we're getting at the unconscious internal working model. And it's a very different animal than the social science research, like the experience of close relationships that you do like online. Those can be interesting and informative, but they very much are getting our conscious representation of ourself now. And that's just not the whole story. Well, and let's be real. It's often we're reading those magazine and interpreting our partner. Yeah. <laughs> like, exactly. oh no, I see that. That's It's my partner that is this or that. Well, but describe for those that don't really understand what the AAP is, but why do we use projective measures? As a psychologist, we do assessment all the time when we use projective measures to get at the unconscious. This was one of the coolest things, Anne. So we just mentioned the paper and pencil test. So that's like you're directly answering questions about yourself. Can I give a good example of that? So sure. people say, why are you such a bad an example? Like, Let's just say if I kind of live more in the blue, for example. Which, and right, which means more on the dismissing side. On more on the dismissing side. side. And somebody asked me, do you frequently feel insecure? Do you generally get... And you're like, nope. 
No, like, no, actually, I'm super secure, right? No, I feel pretty confident. It's other people that are insecure that drive me crazy, right? That's going to be what's in my conscious awareness. So when you're asking me questions in paper or pencil, that bias is already kind of ingrained in my system. I'm not actually being defensive. It's just I'm really unaware. And we all have defenses that make us unaware of what goes on underneath the surface because those defenses are so important. They've worked for us our whole life. Like Patricia Crittenden said, it's been the best thing for me and my environment to develop that system. So projectives are this amazing way to get beyond my defense and get underneath, right? It totally is. And so, you know, there's the answering directly about ourselves. And then there's the, the adult attachment interview, which begins to sneak up on the unconscious. And Mary Main calls it surprising the unconscious so you're still answering questions, historical questions about your relationship with your parent, but you're aware of what you're saying and you're aware of what you're not saying. And there is a way it does get around the defense because they're not really listening to content. They're listening to how you speak. So for example, in that example, if you were saying it's fine, everything's fine, that would already be coded that unconsciously you are trying to say, there's nothing to see here. Let's move along. Right. The way I answer it, the, the method of which I answer it sends a lot of information. Exactly. So it's the narrative stuff. This is how it gets to the unconscious, not just the AI. The AI is the gold standard. It's the adult attachment inventory, gold standard of attachment assessment. And that's what you'll see in a lot of the literature. And that's what you hear from a lot of our guests who are familiar with it that are encouraging all therapists out there to take an AI. Like you've heard that several times, I think, from different interviews about the depth of information that one gets from that kind of assessment. Yeah, but here's the problem is that we say that and they say that, and then people will contact us and say, how do I get an AI? And honestly, Anne, I've asked everybody that should know. And so if you know, if you're listening and you know how to be able to get a directory of folks that are trained and that are taking folks, but it was really hard to find a way to get that assessment. So it's another reason where Carol George comes in. So kind of what we're saying is, you know, if you directly look at it, you get one answer, you know, you can go around the corner with the AI. But what's so magic about the projective is that you're not talking about yourself. So how it works very quickly, there's a little pencil drawing, and you basically just tell the story of what you think is happening there. And then when what you're speaking about right now is the projective measure that Carol George and them developed. Well, all, all the of a- them. Well, many of them. Right. right. The TAT, the Rorschach. Right. But specifically around attachment, you're talking about the AAP, you're talking about a projective measure, specifically having cards that help people tell stories that get underneath the attachment style. And the exciting thing about that is that you're not saying, oh, that person that's sitting on the park bench is me and they're so sad. You're telling a story about someone else. So it really sneaks up on the unconscious. Because when you and I both look at the lady on the park bench, there's a line drawing, you can see it in the show notes from the previous episode or these show notes, which by the way, people ask us, you mentioned show notes, all you do is you go to therapistandcensor.com backslash episodes, and you'll see all of the episodes and you can just click on that and you'll see the show notes. Or you can go to our website and use the search button and just type in whatever you're interested in learning about. And you'll find show notes there. But well, what was were, I saying? <laughs> you were saying that when you and I, which is actually completely true, we've even done it for fun, where we're looking at one and I will see something and you're going, really? And then you'll tell the story and you and I will see 
very different and tell very different stories about the same picture because you and I have very different histories and it comes into our unconscious as we interpret what's happening. What's so amazing about it is that you would just assume that everybody sees the lady whose feet are tired because she's been shopping all day or whatever. And I'm going to assume, well, obviously she's exhausted and depressed or whatever it is that I'm seeing. And it feels like that's just the truth and that everybody would see that. So again, that's one of the reasons that it's so disarming is that we don't think we're talking about ourselves. Mm -hmm. Or the way we see the world, because we're not always seeing ourselves in that exact picture, but it could be an indication of how we're seeing the world or the resources, et cetera. But there's so much to interpret about how you and I see a picture differently. I'll tell on myself on another one of those cards. But basically, there's one where that there's a child sitting up in bed with their arms outreached to what we would presume to be the mother that's sitting on the end of the bed. And again, one of the things about this is that it's also more culturally informed because it's such, you know, very basic line drawings. It's very easy to project kind of whoever, whatever ethnicity, whatever race that you are into the images. So that's helpful. So in this particular one, I remember when I first saw it, my kids were toddlers. And, you know, everybody that has a toddler is struggling with bedtime at some point, right? Getting them to stay in bed and go to bed and be comfortable, you know, with basically it's a separation, to me, what I saw was this child, it was their bedtime, and they were resisting going to bed. And the parent was trying to figure out, do they hold the boundary or do they hold them or, you know, like what was best for the child? <laughs> then I find out, of course, that no, I'm projecting myself into the child. So one scenario here is that me as a child, my mother wouldn't necessarily have immediately picked me up when my arms are out. That as a matter of fact, if I deepen it a little bit, in that story that I was just telling, there's this idea that the child might be manipulating a little bit. And that is something that is a very common signal of dismissing attachment is that we project like, oh, they just want attention. Right. It's like, think about that. They yeah. just, of course, they just want attention. <laughs> As if we shouldn't give it to them because that's what they want and they're seeking it. Right. So did that make sense, that little Oh, scenario? it really does. And I think we, I it's, think it's, it's a, really vulnerable. It's a very vulnerable thing to bring in, which we appreciate because that's why it's the uncensored part in here. And we all have those different stories that are vulnerable like that, that you can go, oh my gosh, that you're interpreting it, that the mom wouldn't immediately reach towards you says so much. And it says so much about the structure of why you develop defenses around that. Yeah, and I even knew what the test was. <laughs> it wasn't being administered formally, but this is how powerful it is. It really gets right around that. I couldn't see anything but my child, I, you know, and the story that I just told. So it is a very powerful experience, but let's shift this back to what's the clinical relevance of these things. Exactly. And so obviously we don't want to teach anybody the test, right? Like if you get lucky enough to be able to take the AAP or to take any kind of projective measures, it's such a welcoming thing to do to sort of relax and let yourself tell the story because you learn so much about yourself. There's so much clinical relevance to it. We could go on in five more episodes about that, but I think it tells us what is our underlying defense. And it also tells us how much, I mean, if you think about the word project, how much we actually project out in the world. And I really loved your discussion actually around that in the interview when Carol George was talking about maybe projecting too much anxiety in the assessment of our own kids. There's so much clinical relevance. I think the biggest one that really hammers when we say that something is unconscious, it really 
is unconscious. It isn't just a defense. It isn't like we just, oh, we're aware of it, but we won't admit it to ourselves. This stuff is so unconscious, but yet so powerful. We were talking about this, Anne, you and I, about chemical dependency and denial. Oh, yeah. And, you know, sometimes we think that denial just means denying that there's a problem and trying to get everybody to not look at the problem. But real, when we talk about actual psychological defense, denial is denying it, denying it to ourselves that we can't even see it. Right. And so we distort information. And one of the things that we've learned through the attachment research is based on our very early experiences, we distort information one direction or the other. We can distort it where that we down-regulate and we don't notice important interpersonal information. And we block it out. And we block out any important affective data, or we can distort it in the direction of overemphasizing and misreading emotional cues, usually in the direction of loss and anger and somebody's done something well, to and us. And also like overreading our own emotional cues, like our emotional cues being so intense inside of us that we need to really, really attend to them. Right. And we need to tell everybody what we're feeling and we need to feel understood and we can't move on until we feel understood. That's an example of an unconscious preoccupation where that we can't just let that gap happen. And our defenses and how we engage, they come out all over the place, especially as parents, right? Like how hard it is like you said, to reach out to a child because you might be misinterpreting their intentions based on your history or how do you assert boundaries? I mean, you guys spoke about that. I thought it was a really great point in the interview. They'll have the parent and the child engage in a cleanup situation where you have all these nice toys and the baby's been playing. Now it's time to clean them up. And it's great to add that to the strain situation clinically or some kind of modified strain situation clinically, in my opinion, because a cleanup situation is not about coming together in the relationship. The cleanup situation says, parent, can you take charge when you need to take charge? And so you get a nice balance between how you come together and then how you take charge. I think that said so well, I'm not sure there's much to add to that. I think the only thing I have to add that I love about that, you know, I have to add something, but what I love about that is that we were speaking earlier about attachment and how people interpret it. It seems only to be focused on the coming together, but I love it. It is also about being able to be secure inside yourself in order to take charge with your parent, with your child and that both or your parent or your parent. Good point. (laughs) But both need to really be looked at because To have a sense of security inside yourself that you can take charge when you need to is a big part of the relationship and the big part of helping your child feel safe and secure. I love that because otherwise what it looks like is that the parent might be all sweet and what looks like connected, but too anxious to disappoint the child and to set the boundary. The child is going to know that. So that's anxious parenting. That is not secure parenting. So you're a parent out there and you're like, oh my gosh, it's like, don't be too nice. Don't be too authoritative. Let's hear what she said, a message directly to the parents. My story and my message to you parents is attachment can really interfere with your relationship with your baby. baby. (laughs) Isn't that great? (laughs) Let me 
pick it up right here. Yeah. Well, every time your child looks away from you, don't assume that your child is insecure. That is not the case. <laughs> you know, children, sometimes you go to pick them up at their childcare facility and they run away from you. Oh my God, my child hates you. This is not an assessment situation. So when we talk about clinical and real life application, we're not saying oh, catch these little moments, and then therefore you're diagnosing your child. I mean, basically, I don't want to repeat what she just said, but I, I really like it as a reassurance that this is these are assess- assessment situations are really controlled and managed. But going back to clinical relevance, one of the things that the research is talking about is that they begin to code, it begins to look really different, and you can hear it differently in the stories in these assessments. So yeah, let's focus in right now on what the different attachment categories is the way that they talk about it in the research, you know, what the stories sound like in the assessment. So based on assessment, how does she talk about security, secure functioning? Let me use her own words. Secure, regardless of how old you are, means that you are flexible, you can take action, and as we move forward in our life, we can integrate. And this is very much along the line of Alan Shore's motion regulation, self-regulation, The parent is very much involved in that. By the time we look at the AP, we're saying, you know, can you do this? And then do you have a representation of your parent helping you? So let's go back to the lady on the bench, for example. Is she upset? And if she's upset, then does she have agency? I mean, I'm just making this up, but, oh, she was shopping all day and her feet are tired. So she sat down and took her shoes off. First of all, notice the lack of trauma in that story, <laughs> unless you've been shopping for a really long time and, you're, and you had really bad shoes, of course. But what you're looking for is that one, that she might be able to handle it herself. Like she rubs her feet for a little while, takes a deep breath, rests, and then is able to get up and go. Or that, oh, her partner that she was shopping with comes and sits next to her and begins to rub her feet and carries the bags, and then they go off together. But the idea that she's describing is that there's a flexibility in both self-agency and in asking for help. And that's kind of what we talk a lot about with integration, that you have both things. And some people mean about agency is that you have the ability in yourself and know you have the ability to handle the situation and act. So I really like just the way she describes it. It's very much how we talk about it. One of the things I love about having expert guests on is that we keep refining our ideas about these things. And I love hearing back what we say (laughs) when she says it in almost the exact way that we say it about the integration and it's about your limbic system being able to be managed by your prefrontal cortex and all of those things. And that that's what security is. You know, I want to go, oh yeah, you're right. (laughs) Like, like she's right (laughs) as if we, (laughs) but it is so it's affirming that we're, what is so important about integrating all of these wonderful mindsets to make sure that we're talking about it in an updated way. She also wrote several books on disorganization. I really appreciated the way she talked about disorganization, especially as she was using the terminology around dysregulation and really highlighting the dysregulated part, which I thought was really accurate. It felt like giving a new twist to something that we've been speaking of, like that helps it, was helping me update in a way. It felt more clarifying to talk about as dysregulating rather than disorganizing. Can we play a little bit of that? Because I I feel like she was very articulate about that. All of those relationships are based on rules. They make sense. And those rules 
There's a beautiful paper by Mary Main published in 1990. Those rules are given to us by our biology. And one rule, which is called primary, is you go directly to the parent, you say what you want, express your anger, you get comforted, and you're done with it. There are two other sets of rules that the insecure children and adults use, which are called secondary rules or strategies, biological strategies. Well, I can't go directly to you, but I can kind of stay just far enough near you. I love that far enough near you. So now we're beginning to get in. So she went back and she was describing a little bit of what organized strategies look like. And now she's beginning to go into where we begin to lose that coherence. And the other is, it's just not okay for me to be direct. You don't like it. You don't hear me. I'll mew. And if you don't hear my mew, I'll frown. You know. And if you don't see my frown, I'll cry. And if you still don't see my cry, I'll scream. That's a closeness rule. But they are rules. And there are sacrifices with those secondary rules. You don't get what you need right away. Your biology doesn't get what it needs right away, but they work. And those relationships are called organized. So when the disorganized pattern was described, what Judith and Mary were seeing was that everybody has a set of rules. So we we all are part of that, but those rules were being disrupted by big things. A baby who was about to approach a parent in the strange situation, making a beeline, just stands there and freezes. What's that? A child goes and hides under the table or behind the door. What, what is that? You're not going to read about that in biology. So I really, really like, and she does reference Crittenden in this, around dysregulation. And basically that the rules that she's describing of approach or getting away get confused. And she actually says, we don't want to call it disorganized attachment. We call it unresolved. When I'm teaching my undergraduates, sometimes I'll say it's like a deck of cards. You you know, cards have an order. You just throw them up in the air and they land and now you're out of order. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I say, you know, it's like the brake and the accelerator at the same time. And we saw that the approach avoidance behavior and a lot of the, not a lot of it, but a good part of the material that Judith and Mary were working with came out of my child abuse study where we're watching children, young children, 12 months to three years in a daycare situation, approaching caregivers. Like we were able to bring a few into the laboratory and do strange situations. And what we propose is that disorganization describes babies in the strange situation, but it is not the word that we should be using to describe the phenomenon. The phenomenon that we propose that we should be using, the term is dysregulated. Because yes, the rules aren't working, but what's happening is that they are emotionally dysregulated. They're frightened, they're hiding, they're angry, you know, they're frozen. Some babies have been observed to dissociate, babies do dissociate. And so we wrote a chapter in our second disorganization book, Disorganized Caregiving, Attachment and Caregiving. The very first chapter is about looking at all the material that's out there about disorganization and our doll play and our caregiving interview that these individuals are dysregulated, not just at the behavioral level, but they're dysregulated at the neurophysiological level, at the hormonal level. And that to say that this is disorganized doesn't really make sense anymore. One. And two, another reason it doesn't make sense is that the majority of these babies grow up to be children who don't look like the babies. They are children who seize control over the reunion 
because we now know from the children's doll play and from the AP, they carry around such painful experiences of abandonment and isolation and being left and not protected by their parents that the way Judith and I explain this is that when a child who as early as three, but certainly by five, takes on a controlling position with the parent, at the moment they're supposed to have reunification. They can do that by being nasty to the parent. This is the punitive type. They can do that by being soothing to the parent. This is the caregiving type. Judith and I propose that the child is trying to remind the parent that they're actually supposed to be the stronger and wiser one in the relationship. Powerful. That was really powerful. That was, I think, my favorite part of the whole interview, because I think the disorganization doesn't capture what's going on internally or even externally for the child and for the relationship. It really, the dysregulation, this frozen part, or the, I loved how she described the activation of becoming nasty, to take control, the idea of taking control. Right, which is control is not disorganized. Right, they feel danger and then they're doing something very specifically to try to get themselves into a more regulated state. I love her interpretation, which is reminding the parent what the parent should be doing. Right. Take control of the situation. Yes. Mm-hmm. In taking control by reminding the parent, the child is seeking for organization, right? That is the way to calm the system down internally to calm the child system down. So they're seeking for organization in a way by trying to take control. And the reason that they do that, and Crediton talks about this, and it was backed up by her research, is that what's going on underneath that sometimes hyper-controlling behavior is terror. Yes. That these kids are scared out of their minds. And so the behaviors that you're seeing, we don't want to just you know, look at that and judge that, that behavioral strategy, that behavioral strategy makes sense in their environment. And it's the best that they can do to achieve some, to strive towards some level of safety. But those kids are terrified. Right. And they may not look terrified. They may look angry. They may be throwing a fit. They may be nasty, as she described it. They aren't looking terrified. They may not even be looking disorganized. Right. And as a matter of fact, one of the things is the further apart what it looks like on the outside versus what it looks like on the inside, we're getting to more and more potential for pathology. I remember in my conversation with Patricia Crittenden, she talked about the kids that were in a hospital and the nurse would come by and they would, and you know, they've had a terrible time, they're sick. And the ones that would give the big smile and say they're great were the ones that you really needed to pay attention to and worry about. I remember that because they had to be so disconnected from their real experience in order to survive. Right. So there's the inside self and the outside self. And the further apart those two are, again, you're seeing that's more of a brittle system. And it's not a disorganized system. Right. I think the key that we were calling one organized is that the function actually works of keeping the parent close. What we have called disorganized is because it doesn't work. The parent is not able to be there in a way that keeps the system safe. So it's the whole system that's disrupted. It isn't just a disorganized internal experience for the child. And so the control that comes out, the terror igniting into an excessive control or falling apart, that really makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense in an unsafe system. 
Right. And just because you have trauma doesn't necessarily mean that you, again, they're calling it dysregulated or unresolved. Just before we wrap up, let's talk about that piece a little bit. Well, if you are using defenses to kind of just contain your trauma, that's not resolved. Not the way that people study trauma. But you're containing it and saying, okay, push comes to shove. We see the trauma in the transcript. You know that your client has some organizing defenses and will try to use them. Whereas the unresolved person, again, following the AI, tries to use organizing defenses, but they're flooded and they become totally dysregulated. I don't want to keep playing this just because, you know, we have the whole interview uh, that you can just back up to the session before now to hear her in much more detail. But these were some of the highlights. And we really encourage you to, if you're interested in the AAP, she was very generous. She does consultation. They do trainings all the time. If you want to get one, they do. It's a much more organized system to be able to find a provider. And it's also, it's a lot less expensive. It's a lot uh, less cumbersome to do than the adult attachment interview. And there's going to be resources on our show notes. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you just, as a matter of fact, if you just type in, and she said this, the adult attachment projective, it'll take you right to her page. And there are a ton of resources there. There's papers. There's all kinds of cool stuff. I love it. I love it. All right. Great interview. Very excited to get to kind of break it down together. So you can hear much more in the actual interview, which precedes this episode. But one of the other highlights that I want, you know how like if you go to a conference, you want to talk about your takeaways. One of them was about shame. Oh, and yes. yeah, and so she does speak at some length about how that, unlike the AI, the AP really can get at this kind of core shame experience. And you won't know exactly what it is, but you'll get the marker for it. And it gives you a area to explore. And that was surprising. That was a surprising finding, but it was something that she felt good about and really wanted to get the word out about. So rather than going on, because we could go on for some time, we just really wanted to give you the highlights. Absolutely go and hear her directly. And if you are interested in either being assessed yourself or getting training, she does consultation. They do training all the time. Literally type in your browser, adult attachment projective, and it'll go straight to her page. And there's lots of resources there. You can also find them on our show notes. And again, therapistcenter.com backslash episodes, and it'll, it'll be right there. You just kind of scroll through and find it. All right. Thanks for listening. Please take some time to rate and review us as well as consider becoming a Supercast member. Become a NeuroNerve. Help support us. Help spread this far and wide right now. You can join at a 10% discount. All you need to do is to go to therapistuncensored.com backslash neuronerds, and it'll take you right there so you can join and be part of the community. It's a really wonderful community, and we would love to have you aboard. Yeah, this is actually really important if you wouldn't mind to do it right now, because if you mean to, if you think, oh, yeah, I'm going to do that and you don't do it this second, often we don't. And it will get you ad-free feed and more access and, of course, discounts and stuff for anything that we do in the future. So therapistuncensored.com backslash neuronerds. And hopefully we'll see you there. And we'll see you around the bin. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. 
LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.